you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Psalm 139, and we're going to read that in its entirety. Psalm 139. And this is probably, of, of all the passages in Scripture, one of the most um, fully dynamic about the, the worldview of, of God being kind of all around, uh, knowing all things, being sovereign over all that we find. And, and it reads this way. It's, it's a Psalm of David. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the sea uh, of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They, seek, uh, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries, God, misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Now search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we just come to you this morning, and we seek... Um, to know, to experience, to feel your love for us and to somehow walk out of here this morning nurtured spiritually that we can continue on um, knowing or seeing or understanding or discerning the world we live in somehow a little bit better and that we would know the joy that comes in relationship with you. And so to that end, we commit ourselves to the rest of this morning. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, Psalm 139 gives us this picture of, of both the transcendence and the imminence of God. Those are two theological words. The transcendence of God really, really speaks theologically to how high or, or other or different or above uh, or bigger than us God is. God is transcendent. He's out there. He's really, really big. Uh, he's over everything. And in that, we kind of get the sovereignty of God, another theological word. The sovereignty of God means that God, uh, his will is going to take place in this world. Uh, it's not that God has, has desires or wishes for the world and he's helpless. Like he's, he's up there. He, he's really big in that he sees everything, but he's powerless. Nothing that he actually wants takes place. 
the sovereignty of God is actually that God is in control. Uh, and the sovereignty of God takes on two, two dynamics. One's a passive, one's an active one. Um, how can bad things happen if God's really in control, if God's really sovereign? Because um, God allows some bad things to happen. Uh, if I'm on a playground and I'm sitting in a, in a bench on the playground and my children are playing, I can, I can exercise passive control, meaning at any time if I wanted to, I could intervene, um, but I allow a lot of things to happen on that playground. Active control is when I do intervene. I step in and I say, uh, no, this isn't going to happen. Um, no to my kids, you're not going to bully some other kid. They don't do that. I'm just saying that. Um, so passive control is I'm, I'm allowing things to happen, but I have the power, if I chose, to, to intervene. Active control is I'm actually intervening and directing affairs more closely. So God is transcendent. He's, he's high. He's lofty. He's distant. He's sovereign. He's in control. And God is imminent, meaning he's very close. Uh, the nearness of God, Jesus coming down. Uh, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The kingdom of God is in you. The Holy Spirit brings about the, the imminence of God, the, the nearness of God. You, you see Paul talk in Romans about that the Holy Spirit knows our emotions and our experience even deeper than we do. In some sense, the Holy Spirit can teach us how to pray or what to pray for because it, the Holy Spirit really understands us at a deeper level than, than maybe our minds can understand what we're going through. So the imminence of God, that God is very close, both of these are, are theological concepts that in some sense, all around us um, is God. And that God knows us even more deeply than we know ourselves. He knit us together, he created us, and he, he even has ordained our days in some sense. Um, it's not an excuse to eat potato chips all day long every day. Um, what does it matter? God already knows when I'm gonna die, the day of my death. Like, no, it's not like an excuse to eat potato chips. But, but God knows you better than you know yourself. Right, And this is a very dynamic, clear picture of, of how significant God is in terms of this world or this universe. But it, it leaves this interesting kind of question. Like God is there. God is firm. God is established. God, God is a really important thing in the universe and, and the next question is, so how do I live? Like, therefore, God is, therefore, how should I live? What should I do? Today, what should I do? When, when I'm looking at buying a house or selling a house, what should I do? When I'm looking at the stock market, what should I do? When I'm looking at a career change, what should I do? Like this idea that God is transcendent, God is imminent, God is sovereign. All of these are wonderful theological concepts, but they always beg this question, okay, then how should I live? And the interesting thing is, is that tension of now each day I have to figure out what it looks like to live in this day brings about kind of safe spots, ways of, of kind of finding a formula or a dominant um, theme that's going to govern our action because it's a, it's a it's pretty wide open. It's pretty ambiguous. Like, what should I do on, on this particular Monday? 
in 2016 or 2017. It's wide open. So you, you begin to find that Christians over different periods of time begin to coalesce around dominant themes. The Catholic Church for a very long time, uh, certainly coming into the Middle Ages, which was not the best of the Catholic Church, began to coalesce around, I just attach myself to the church, do what the church says, and then the rest of it's just kind of up to me. Um, I go to the church, I go for mass, I go for confession, I go to receive kind of spiritual goods, and the church has authority in, in society and in my life. And so that's the authority, I'm not going to question that, and then the rest is kind of um, up to me. Now that's a really thin reading of a, of a bad view of medieval Catholic religion, so I can't be held guilty for offending any Catholic. Um, but that's kind of where society when you're coming up to the Renaissance and then into the Reformation, had coalesced around kind of how do we live out our, our daily life. The Reformation came, and then you had all these various strands or denominations uh, slowly emerge over the next couple, couple hundred years. And those different denominations or strands, they all began to kind of find a, a different way of looking at it. So Baptists, it began to be really about doing the right things holding the right beliefs and doing the right things so that you can be right, so that you can stand um, as a righteous person next to God. And it's very biblical idea that morality really matters, that, that righteousness really matters. And the problem with that is if you begin to overemphasize that to such a high degree, you begin to get a little bit of a legalistic or duty-bound faith or religion. And so that was... Well, even to today, if, if you're going to look at the bad stereotype of Baptists, it's that it, it becomes or can be a bit legalistic or duty-bound. Um, a bit pharisaical if you lose connection to the grace or the relationality that comes with Christ. So that would be kind of the bad stereotype of Baptists, of Pentecostals. Pentecostals or the charismatic tradition that really began about 1904. So it's a rather recent one. Uh, for them, how should we live really became about the power, uh, um, the power that we should have as Christians that we see in the New Testament period where, the, where miracles were being done, people were being healed, and we were really seeing a dynamic work of God, the kingdom of God being born in power, and that the Holy Spirit can guide that. So we have to have a really strong look to uh, and searching out of the Holy Spirit for guidance. So that relationship becomes uh, with the Holy Spirit becomes really important. And so that was kind of the centering of how do we live. For Wesleyans, going back a couple hundred years, Wesleyans, it became for John Wesley about holiness, the holiness tradition. So uh, Wesley believed that you could become or we should be pointing toward in this life uh, a degree of perfection, that we shouldn't be um, living in sin as Christians, that over time we could get to this holiness where sin was something that we had put behind us. And so holiness and the disciplines, spiritual disciplines that went with that uh, began to be a really important thing in the Wesleyan tradition. So you, you see different ways of saying, here's a dominant theme that we're kind of pointing ourselves to as people, Christians, in these traditions, that it's going to somehow shape or govern how we're looking at how we're supposed to live. Now, the Presbyterians, uh, the Reformed tradition, um, kind of eventually coalesced around a different idea. 
And so the Reformed tradition, you see really the Huguenots in France. It was Calvin who was French. They were chased out, the wars of religion in France. Catholics won, the Protestants kind of lost. Uh, you had Catherine de' Medici, the mother of, of various kings, staunchly Catholic, uh, exerting a lot of influence. So Calvin and others went to Switzerland where they had freedom. So you see a whole kind of reformed tradition uh, being birthed in Geneva and Zurich uh, in Switzerland. This is the mid-1500s. And you, you see that reformed tradition ending up being what, what becomes the dominant thinking in Scotland, so late 1500s. So during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, roughly middle 1500s to late 1600s, Queen Elizabeth was firmly in this idea that I'm not going to pick a side between the Protestants and the Catholics. I'm going to keep this Church of England thing, the Anglicanism, going that my father, King Henry VIII, started. And so she, uh, this, the, kind of the golden age of Queen Elizabeth, she kept that in the middle all the way up until uh, about 1604, I think is when she died. And meanwhile, Scotland is Protestant. You have Switzerland um, and Holland, Protestant, and Spain, very Catholic, and France just being ripped apart, okay? And, and so all of this is going on. And then you see something really interesting. When Queen Elizabeth dies, she dies without an heir. Uh, she had never been married. She thought she would lose her power if she got married because it was a radical idea that you had a woman leader, a queen at that time. And so she kept putting off all the suitors and stayed single all the way till she died. So when she died, the logical heir to the throne was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots uh, was raised in the French court, um, eventually was a threat to, to Queen Elizabeth. So Queen Elizabeth had her imprisoned for over a decade and then finally beheaded. And her son, who had reigned in Scotland ever since he was a little boy, uh, was James VI of Scotland. So James VI, growing up in Scotland, you've got this Reformed tradition. And what happens in 1604 when Queen Elizabeth dies is that Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James VI of Scotland, becomes James I of England. So if you've been following the news this week, I don't know how you'd have missed it, but the whole Brexit thing, um, the United Kingdom pulling out of the EU, this is the beginning of that, not officially, but you have one monarch, James VI of Scotland, who's James I of England, one monarch over what becomes the United Kingdom eventually, and it wasn't, so they were united under one king, but two different political systems, okay? So this is 1604. In 1700, roughly about 1700, 1701, the two political systems get merged, and that's when you have the United Kingdom being born, uh, and that's what's probably gonna dissolve in the next, I don't know, however many years when Scotland gets another referendum. So it'll be the first time in 300 years that you see that kind of separate out. But, but King James is the first time you see it unified under one monarchy, right? So he comes in, he's one monarch, and he's trying to keep the peace between all these warring factions. He does a, a decent job. One of the things he does to keep the peace is he, he allows for the first time a, sanction, like a truly sanctioned Bible project which is gonna be translating the Latin text of the Bible, which is what everybody had been using since about the 300s, the Latin Vulgate, the Latin text of the Bible. Um, the real war between Catholics and Protestants was the Catholics were not allowing um, the Bible to be read by commoners. 
And the Protestants, ever since Wycliffe in the 1300s, wanted to be able to read the Bible in their own native tongue, their own language. And so this is a big part of this whole Reformation battle. So King James says, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to sanction a truly authoritative Bible project where all the scholars can come. It'll take years and years and years, and everybody will be finally happy with this idea of a Bible in, uh, in the native tongue, the, the British tongue, the English tongue. And so he commissions that Bible, and that Bible becomes, anyone want to guess? The 1611 King James Bible, okay? So that 1611 King James Bible, because you have it being as the first kind of true English translation, it was a beautiful translation, borrowed a lot from William Tyndall, but because that Bible had that many people, and it was the first one that came about, and then the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, eventually coming together and forming the world's greatest empire. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever have an empire that rivals what the, the... the British Empire became. But in, in the reign of Queen Victoria especially, you just see this move of the British Empire expanding everywhere. And when you end up as the authority in some other country, you export your culture, your values, the things you hold sacred, and even your language and how you think deeply about things that matter. So for most of the missions movement, the Bible that went to foreign countries was what Bible? The 1611 King James Version. So that's why when you see the proliferation, really since the the 60s and 70s, the proliferation of English Bible translations, there's a lot of Christians that freak out at that or have freaked out at that. And they say, I don't know what to trust anymore of what's going on or or what the agendas are behind these Bibles that are written to make money by businesses that aren't even Christian businesses. And so, so in all of that, the safe thing to do is to... For, for those people as to what? Let's go back to what we know, right? So they, they kind of run back to, let's just keep the, the King James Bible as our kind of standard text and, and it's gonna feel a lot more comfortable there. So if you've ever met somebody that's a King James only person, what they're really saying is, this is the authoritative text and, and we should all kind of use that as the standard. Now there's a whole lot of reasons why I disagree with that. Um, most of which is, the manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts that were being used to make the the King James Bible in in the 1600s are not the best manuscripts we have anymore. We have a lot better and a lot more ancient manuscripts that date to the 100s, 200s, 300s, etc. And so we have a lot better material to use in making Bible translations than we did in the 1600s. So all that aside, King James puts this English Bible out it's, it's in his name. By the way, King James is really big in the front cover piece, like the, the, the picture of the King James Bible. Like King James is really big. And then there's like a Moses. I, there's all these figures, but it's like, it's really about his political authority, um, by the way. So that's 1611. He kind of keeps peace. But by the, the 1640s, um, and you see the reign of Charles I, Charles VI of Scotland, Charles I of England, so a successor now, you see the the loss of political control and you have the English Civil War. So the English Civil War happens in the 1640s and basically you see Parliament in England siding with Parliament in Scotland and the reformed kind of people, the ones that want to get rid of Anglicanism, certainly Catholicism, the reformed people, the, the Protestants, 
vying against the crown, the authority, who, who obviously wants to continue a form of the Church of England, and you see this English civil war happen. Eventually, Charles loses his life in that, uh, but, but the monarchy gets reestablished, the whole, whole kind of English history. During this time, though, this brief period while, while this war is going on, and while Parliament kind of has the upper hand, they convene um, the Westminster kind of assembly. And the Westminster Assembly was, if we're going to be a Protestant nation, not a Church of England nation, we have to have the kind of an article, we have to have creeds, we have to, have, uh, we have to formulate what this church in England is really going to look like, and we have to do it along Protestant lines. So they bring together this Westminster kind of assembly, and they meet for several years, and out of that comes one of the, the biggest, most important church documents um, of the last 2,000 years, and that's the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is still held by the Church of Scotland as a dominant um, doctrinal piece. Ended up being uh, taken on by Baptists, by nonconformists, by different denominations kind of all around the world as kind of their, their grounding confession of faith. So the Westminster Confession of Faith emerges, obviously, uh, when the Protestants lose out in England, it kind of just becomes a part of history, right, uh, in terms of Church of England. But this dominant uh, kind of central document comes out, and then two catechisms, the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, are, are birthed around this kind of confession of faith. Catechisms are a way of training people. So the larger and the shorter catechism were a way of taking children in the church and teaching them the articles of faith, the articles of confession, basically raising them up so that you're not just doing youth group activities, like you're learning the doctrines of the church, and that this begins to be a part of your being confirmed, uh, you know, kind of into the larger body of the church, but they're educational documents. Anyone, like if you grew up in the Presbyterian tradition, like a, a real strong kind of Presbyterian church, there's a chance that you probably went through that. Anyone here, raise your hand, I'm just curious. Anyone go through the, yeah, um, the larger, the shorter confession or uh, catechism, Westminster Catechism. And so you have this catechism um, come about which kind of formulates these doctrines. And the first question, the very dominant part of the Westminster Confession and then what gets put into the catechism is, is this opening kind of salvo. So this is 1946, this is the Western Confession. And the opening salvo is, what is the chief end of man? We would say, what is the chief end of humankind these days? But what is the chief end of, of man? It's not exactly right, though. Um, so <laughs> don't. Um, what is it? Let me, I'll, I'll read it this way. Um, what is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So there's this fascinating thing where whenever you have a long list of things, hundreds of questions, right? Which one do you remember most? The first one, right? So the first one is this piece that gets lifted out and really in in uh, Protestant, but especially Presbyterian circles, begins to be this kind of overarching answer or theme to this question, 
how should we now live? So remember, God is everywhere. He's imminent, he's transcendent, he's sovereign. He has the ability to exercise control or power over all things. And, and that really bursts this question in this God-haunted universe, this, this, this God-filled universe, like how should we live? And for, the, for this tradition then, for the Presbyterians, it's really um, we live for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God. So it's different than... Uh, how should we live? We should live morally. It's different than how should we live? We should live in power and in communion with the Holy Spirit seeking guidance that way. It's different than um, the holiness tradition. It's different than a lot of traditions. All of them, by the way, are, are right. There's strands of what would make up right ways to live, right? Everything can be taken to an extreme, but they're all biblical answers. The Presbyterian answer is a very different one. Because it doesn't aim at life. So God is big. God, is, God knows everything. God's at, at work in the world. And so how should we live? We should live this way, fill in the blank. All of the other answers kind of are about life. They're, they're looking at what is next. And then what is next. And then what is next. And what we should do next. And how we should keep living next. Or what should be the kind of moral compass items by which we live or navigate. The interesting thing about the Presbyterian one is it, is it, it loops back around. It says whatever we do here, whatever we do, whether it's mundane or what they would have called secular, baking bread, uh, or spiritual, like uh, ministering or doing missions work or, or or loving on someone, or caring for orphans, whether it's kind of a seemingly spiritual thing or a seemingly kind of secular, sac or, uh, that's the secular sacred distinction. What, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever your hands are doing, you should be doing that thing back to the glory of God. So it, it doesn't, it's not an arc. It's, it ends up closing the loop. Do you see how that works? And this becomes so dominant in Reformed thinking that, that everything is permeated with this idea that as we're living, we're living ultimately to the praise and to the glory of God. And, and if, if we're enjoying life, we're enjoying life with this opportunity to give thanks back to God, that God would have created uh, life to be enjoyed, would have created the opportunity for enjoyment. Even in our trials, we're looking at our trials and saying, God, how I navigate this and the attitude I have or the faith I have as I'm going through this to, to your glory. And if I do something well and people praise me, I say, look, I'm only doing what, what God has given me the talents and the gifts and the ability to do. I, I'm really doing this to the glory of God. Like he gets the credit because, you know what? I am not a self-made person. I, I was blessed with parents that did, that did this. I was blessed with a spouse who allowed for this. And, and so, yeah, it's really cool that this happened in my life, but, but God be the glory, you know? Like, so it's this interesting um, worldview kind of connection that circles back to this ultimate kind of reality. And in doing so, what they're really grabbing hold of is this tradition of means and ends. And means and ends, we use it very simply in, in culture, but historically it's a very deep, well kind of thought through um, philosophical way of looking at life. Basically, means and ends. It's like this is a mean, that's an end, right? Um, is going to the grocery store an end or a means? It's a means, right? Getting uh, food is my end, 
right? Well, even getting food, is that a means or an end? Well, it's a means to the end of being fed or nourished, right? Because I, I need sustenance. Well, getting sustenance, is that a means or an end? Well, it's a means of keeping me active because I don't live to just stay alive. I live to live, you know, and have relationships and to love. So even the nourishment is... A, so you can kind of begin to see that not all means and ends are the same. They actually can end up in causal chains. Does that make sense? That you can begin to follow a chain all the way up and realize that each time you reach an end, you can actually realize or see that that serves some other higher good, right? So Aristotle was the first one to kind of work this all the way out. And he eventually said, when you, when you, when you kind of chase all of these chains, you eventually end up with what, what would be called the ultimate or last end. So where does it all stop, right? When you, when you chase all of these things down. For Aristotle, it was happiness. It was happiness, um, which is why Thomas Jefferson reached back to that whole classical tradition and said, this is an, an inalienable right, the pursuit of happiness. It's an ultimate end, is what he was basically saying. The, the Reformation, um, they came to it and said, look, man's ultimate happiness is found in relationship with God Actually, the ultimate end is really um, the glory of God. So I'll read you the scriptures. The scriptures, they're, they're all over the Bible, but here's kind of a sampling of them. Uh, Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, to God, be the glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1:16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Hebrews 2.10, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom, uh, and, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So from, uh, for and from and through... Proverbs 16.4, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am he who blots out your trans uh, transgressions, forgives your sins, for my own sake, and remembers your sins no more. Why does God forgive our sins? Ultimately, for his own sake. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's kind of the Reformation theme song, 1 Corinthians 10.31. John 14, 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. So why would Jesus give us authority or power to do the things that we need to do in this world ultimately to the glory of the Father? 1 Peter 4, 11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture. Even the Lord's Prayer. I grew up hearing the Lord's Prayer, but there's this fascinating little part when you're reading the Lord's Prayer where you're like, I, you know, how did that sneak in there? You know, and how did I not miss that? But um, as you're kind of going through it, um, and when you pray, uh, uh, Did I just really lose the Lord's Prayer in my Bible? It just fell out of my Bible. 
Dang it. Uh, here we go. It's, I, it just changed locations on me. That's all. I told you guys I lost my Bible, right, that I've been preaching out of for 20 years. Um, I told you that, that I tell that story. <laughs> and uh, I'm not a sentimental guy, but just the week before I lost it, I told Tamara, like, wouldn't it be cool if I could gift this to one of my daughters someday? Blah, 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 blah. And then I lost it. Um, <laughs> so this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our, our debts as we forgive those um, who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done. What's that hallowed be your name part? I mean, it's just that kind of King James language, but what does it actually mean? Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy or set apart be your name, meaning your name is going to be not included with where all the other names are. Like, your name is special. Like, your name, as we're praying, we're, we're saying you and, and your name need to be set apart first and foremost in this whole conversation. And your kingdom come and your will be done. Now, switching to what I need, would you give me my daily bread? And would you not lead me into temptation? Because that's going to snare me and it's going to ruin my life. No matter what sin promises you, it's always cotton candy, right? So lead me not into temptation. But this interesting thing, like I'm... I'm first and foremost saying that you are preeminent in all things. And all things that I ask are subsumed underneath the fact that you are preeminent in all things, God. Like this idea of the, for my own namesake, for my own glory, like that idea is all throughout scripture hiding in little places, in little pockets, at the end of prayers, at the end of chapters and verses, all throughout scripture. And the word here, glory, it's, there's a Hebrew word that then gets translated into the Greek, but it basically means um, weightiness, fame, honor, like money, like gold was always weighed out. It still is. And so this idea of supreme value is something that really is connected to weight. Like how heavy, like what's the thud when that hits the table? And so this idea of God's glory is the weightiness, the gravitas, the beauty, the perfection, the worthiness of God. So when we're worshiping, that word worship, we get it from an old Anglo-Saxon word that was called worth-ship. Worth-ship. Our worship, when we're singing or whatever we're doing, worship is really ascribing worth back to God. We're not making him worthy. God is already worthy, but we're basically reflecting back and giving him the glory that is due his name the praise that is due his name. Even if it's a, a, a discipline, because I don't feel like it, I come into worship and I'm ascribing worth back to God. I say, God, I'm weak, I'm tired. I don't feel like it, but yes, I'm confessing that I know you are worthy to be praised. Even in my darkest hour, I know you're worthy to be praised. Even when, even when I don't feel like you're answering my prayers the way I wish you were, I do know your name needs to be set apart. And you're worthy to be praised. Even if you're not actively sovereignly controlling things, I know that you still could control things. So whatever your reasons are, you're worthy to be praised. Worthship. So in ascribing worth to God, it's, it's like throw a big bowling ball on a, 
a trampoline and you see that it kind of creates this, this you know, dent in the middle and you put anything else on that trampoline, what's going to happen? They're just going to roll down to where that spot is in the middle, where that bowling ball, the weightiness of that is kind of making everything bend to it. God, you drop God in the equation, everything then bends around it. So it's this fascinating thing. So this idea, this uh, Presbyterian idea of, of the glory of God became such a part of culture. Now I'm changing, shifting here. It became such a part of culture that when you get to the United States, the United States is all of the people that felt like they couldn't, the early settlers, the pilgrims, the Puritans, all of the people who felt like they didn't have religious freedom in England um, after the civil wars and all that, they left England and came to the United States. So you have a, a strong concentration, nonconformist, Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, etc., a strong concentration of Protestants that believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what language gets passed around culture and society that we do this to the glory of God? That, that, again, where did these people land? New England, Massachusetts, this area of the country, if you grew up in, in that time period or even later, you know that there's a whole lot of people that think that the chief end of, of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let me, let me throw a curveball at you with uh, Henry David Thoreau. So Henry David Thoreau, Boston, late 1800s. He's a transcendentalist, not necessarily a Christian. And we all know Henry Th uh, David Thoreau, most of us know Henry David Thoreau um, through one channel. That's Robin Williams in, in the movie um, Dead Poet Society. I'm, I'm serious. Uh, the phrase, suck the marrow out of life, comes from Henry David Thoreau. It was a big part of kind of the backdrop of that movie, Dead Poet Society. But here's Henry David Thoreau. This is the actual, not just the one line, this is the actual paragraph from his book, Walden, that kind of chronicled his time living by a lake out in the countryside. And he says this, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it, and publish its meanness to the world, or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. Now, listen. For most men, it appears to me, are in a strange uncertainty about it, whether it is of the devil or of God, and have somewhat hastily concluded that it is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So Thoreau is actually pushing against the dominant answer to this question of what is the chief end of man and saying, I'm going to go find it for myself. 
And Thoreau's language is beautiful and captivating. And a whole different sermon, a different day. Our culture is Thoreau. Okay? We have this Christianity thing. Man, my parents, my grandparents, well, whoever it is, you've too quickly bought into that. I want to go figure some things out first. I want to go explore and adventure and, and experience it myself. And you know what? If, I'm, if I mess my life up, well, that's on me. And I mean, we're very Thoreau-like. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. Um, it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, Nietzsche. So Nietzsche, again, the late, uh, the, philosopher, the German philosopher of the late 1800s, listen to how he's drawing this theme. Again, where did the Reformation happen? Germany. So he's kind of railing against the Lutheran side of this. The persecutor of God is the title of this aphorism. Paul thought up the idea and Calvin rethought it. That for innumerable people, damnation has been decreed from eternity. And that this beautiful world plan was instituted to reveal the glory of God. Heaven and hell and humanity are thus supposed to exist to satisfy the vanity of God. What cruel and insatiable vanity must have flared in the soul of the man who thought this up first or second. Paul has remained Saul, after all, the persecutor of God. Now again, Nietzsche was a, one of the first ever really truly self-avowed atheists. So obviously he's railing against this. But this idea of the glory of God that's all throughout Scripture, that God himself through the prophets says, for my own name's sake I do this, becomes this, this kind of abomination to the empowered secular worldview that says, um, your life is your own. And you should have the freedom to go figure it out and to go live it and to go try things. Whatever makes you happy. Um, and we're still answering this question. Uh, yeah, God's big, God's around. I feel a lot of shoulds or oughts. Uh, but I really have to still figure out life, and I want to figure out life, this question of how should I now live. And if God's going to help me, great. Um, but I've become a mercenary now, meaning I don't serve God for love of country. I serve God for love of what God can do for me, a mercenary. A mercenary doesn't fight the battle because of loyalty of country. They fight the battle because they're being paid. So I, I want to figure out how to live. Ultimately, my chief goal here is a good life, happiness. I want my friends to look at me and be jealous and, you know, whatever. I want to, I want to succeed at life, which means happiness. And, and you know what? God, if he's big and in control and I kind of owe him some allegiance, that's great. So God, here's my list of requests, my, my, my dreams, the house I want to have someday. Like, here's all this. Now, if you're going to help me, great. But ultimately, ultimately, it's a mercenary faith. Because if, if you stop paying me, God, I will switch allegiances. I will look and find some other worldview, some other community, some other ideology that I think will serve me better as I'm figuring out my life. And we've lost any true sense of, of biblical submission to God. Why does God want us to make sure we glorify him? Because the only way we remain in a position of faith or submission to God is if God is first. If we're first, 
then we've made an idol of our own, our own life. It's, it's, it's either one or the other. That's why Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. You can't have two masters. Jesus says, look, I'm not a tyrant, but I am above you. Like I am in authority here. God is saying, look, I, it's for my namesake and for my glory, but it's not ultimately only for me. It's as you're serving me and finding your greatest happiness in this relationship that we together have the greatest relationship, that you're gonna find my greatest blessing, that you're gonna experience the closeness of my presence, that you're gonna get to see my power and my majesty at work in your life or in the life of people around you, that ultimately it's only gonna work right if we're in this kind of a relationship. And so I, yes, need you to understand that. And when we come out from underneath that and say, God, you ultimately have to serve us as we serve our own agenda, we've broken that chain and we've taken this whole thread through scripture and gotten rid of it. And we now only think of means to an end. God is a means to our ends and we've lost the idea of ultimate end. That when you boil it all down, I exist for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. We, together, Antioch, exist for the glory of God. That we don't come from nowhere. We come from him. And we don't come without any kind of a script or definition or identity. We actually come already pre-shaped and pre-formed the way he created us to be. And that God has a specific call and desire for the kinds of values that we would have and hold and the kind of culture that we would create and ultimately the kind of light that we would bring through love and justice and mercy, and that all of that working as he's kind of defined that already, and as we co-labor with him, would, would be to the praise of him and to the satisfaction of us. Our greatest joy comes in our strongest worship. Our greatest joy, says Jesus in John 15, comes through our greatest expression of love for each other. That somehow all of this, our joy and satisfaction and God's glory are, are intricately bound up. That's what it means when we say we become a Christian. Is that we don't just say, today I believe God exists, I'm a Christian. We say, today I believe God exists and I'm choosing to let him be Lord of my life. Jesus is my Savior, my Lord. God, the Father over everything and that means when I die to self and, and kind of come back to life as a different person, that from that moment forward, I'm living to the glory of God. If I buy a house, I'm thinking, does this glorify God? If I sell a house, is this glorifying God? When I look at plans for next year, is this glorifying God? Is this from God, through God, to God? If you're gonna get baptized today, you're jumping into the picture of dying to self being lowered under the water, and being raised again as a new creature, a new creation, a child of God, a follower of Christ. And that in this new identity of yours, your ultimate end, the thing that frames life for you, is that you're there to glorify God and find your greatest satisfaction in Him. Um, I'm going to just leave it there because we're, we're short on time. I want to put an invite out though. We have our our baptism and our barbecue tonight. It's one, the greatest church event we do every year is, is this. Everybody turns out. Um, that's why you want to come because everyone else is going to be there. Um, uh, 
but it's super fun. Weather's going to be amazing, and it's a chance for you to encourage, be with, etc., in, in fellowship, in food, and then in support with the baptism, uh, those are being baptized, who are being baptized. But I want to ask, if you have not been baptized, you might have called yourself a Christian for years and years and years, and you've just never been baptized. Why? Because you're like, eh, why does it matter? Because I think you've been fed a Christianity that's a very thin one, where symbolism doesn't really matter because ultimate ends don't really matter. And I would invite you, like, this is a great time to get baptized. And to say, look, everything about me, my body is going to stand in water and demonstrate this symbol that I want to live into this new creation life where my ultimate end is is the glory of God. And I want people to know that, that I'm basically declaring that to the world. If you've been a Christian for a long time, never been baptized, I would invite you to join us tonight in baptism. Um, If you are a brand new believer uh, and you want to get baptized, I invite you to join in. If you have questions that you want to ask of me after the service to talk about this, I would invite you to come and and ask me. Um, So we're about to take the offering. If you want to be baptized, two things. Just write your name down on the card that goes in the offering bucket. And there's going to be a short meeting, five-minute meeting, for the people that are being baptized after the service. And and just plan on coming to that as well. But I, I invite you to take serious this beautiful faith that we've been called into, um, even in the seriousness of the symbols that, that make that faith up. So um, let's close in prayer, and they're coming out to do the offering. Father, may we truly, slowly, over time, grow into a deep knowledge, a mature knowledge of what it means that all things are from, through, and to you. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.